All right, hello, and welcome to what will be, I think, uh, episode 10 of Reading Tolkien. Once I get episode 8 and 9 out, or whatever it is, <laughs> I can't remember now, but we do have a couple of interviews uh, that will be up soon. I've mentioned a few times um, the interview with, uh, well, Gergai Naj, who's a Hungarian scholar, and the other one, uh, Vladimir Berliak, who is a Czech, Czech? No. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Vladimir. I probably got that wrong. Um, Croatian, I think he is. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> Croatian scholar. And um, they were great interviews and mainly on Tolkien and metafiction and use of metafictional devices and stuff in his fiction. Uh, so they will be out hopefully soon. I'm just waiting on sort of finalizing, um, finalizing those and then, uh, you know, we will go from there and I have a few other interviews possibly lined up. So that should be fun. But um, today I'm here with Shrida. So how are you, Shrida? How's, how have you been? <laughs> I've been well. How about you? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Just uh, just busy, but, but you know, getting there. Um, so this will be another one of our uh, sort of chat episodes where we <laughs> where we chat about a particular um, particular topic or subject. Today we're going to talk about the Children of Hurin book, um, which is uh, one of my favourite Tolkien stories and it's very different to Lord of the Rings. And uh, so you, this was the first time you read or, as it were, listened to this, isn't it, I, I think, Shreda? Yes, it is. It, it was the first time. Yeah, yeah. How did you like uh, Christopher Lee reading the, the book? I assumed you listened to that one. I think that's the main one. Yeah, yeah, I, I did listen to that one. Um, it, it's quite nice. Um, he has a he has a wonderful voice um, <laughs> yeah, for does. for this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. it's, it's very epic. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I will say I think I, I will probably end up um, ordering the actual book of it. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I, I don't know if this is a problem with fiction in general for audiobooks or um, yeah. particularly the the children of Huron, but um you know it, it does as especially in the beginning it's it's very um it's very sort of name and place heavy um and and for for me it's a, it just sort of like flies uh flies through my ears without it's really hard to sort of <laughs> grasp it you know if you're not looking at it on the page uh, yeah for sure so yeah. i i definitely think it's good to have um the text and the audiobook. I, I don't know about you. What do you think? I think that's true, especially for this kind of text that, as you say, is um, name and place heavy. I mean, especially if you haven't read some of the other first stage stuff mm. um, and it's all kind of unfamiliar to you. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. Might want, yeah. You might want the, the map and the book and the introduction, uh, which is quite useful um, because that goes over a lot of the uh, preceding events. Um, if you don't want to read the whole Silmarillion, <laughs> um, which I don't think you have to to read this book, although obviously some familiarity with with it uh, is going to be useful, um, if nothing else. But but I think you can. Well, you can tell me because <laughs> when I read this, of course, I already had some sense of the larger story. But um, but I think it it probably works on its own. Some levels, at least, yeah. I, I would say that it does. I think I think it definitely is one of those things where um, it, it it obviously bears sort of um, like a, a lot of rereading to sort of get get 
used to it. And, um, yeah, yeah, and sure. like you said, I think the, the more, you know, of, of the sort of background, the better it will be. Um, mm-hmm. and if anyone's listening who like hasn't read it, um, it might even be useful to see if you can find like a summary of it, um, like yeah. online or something. Um, because yeah, especially if you're going to listen to it, because like, like I said, it's, um, it's, it's easy to get sort of lost in the weeds if you're not, um, yeah. really familiar with it yet. And, uh, I still think, but you know, if you, if you can sort of fumble your way around, um, <laughs> around well enough, I think, you know, you get there eventually and it's, it's, it's fine enough, uh, especially after, after the story like really picks up, um, yeah. like it's really yeah. like, you know, quite name and place heavy for, for like a couple chapters or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it picks up eventually, but, um, it's, yeah, it, like, yeah, I, I think it, it stands on its own, but, but it definitely, um, the the more you know before like the more you go know going into it i think the 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 better it will be probably is that fair yeah yeah that makes sense i think um yeah so i guess just to give a, a general um introduction to it for those who <laughs> may not know about it uh so this is a, a kind of a, um, a first stage book novel um i will get into exactly what it is but um, yeah, it, it's obviously part of the Silmarillion, um, I guess, it's a set of stories, the first stage kind of um, cycle. So it's set quite a while before Lord of the Rings, um, quite a few thousand years. And it looks at, or, you know, it, it looks at a particular family, <laughs> I guess, set of set of characters who belong to the same family. And, you know, in short, they are cursed, and it, this, this book tells the story of, of their lives um, as they as they go through from childhood to the end, <laughs> and um, and it's pretty bleak. And uh, you know, there's there's dwarves and elves and various other Tolkienian sort of tropes, um, if you want to call them that, and uh, no hobbits, which is nice. And you know, it's just a, well, it's just. As we'll get into, I think it's just quite a different kind of story to Lord of the Rings. Uh, it diff- gives a kind of a different side to Tolkien. Um, I don't know. That was probably a pretty shitty synopsis. But do you have <laughs> do you have anything to add to that? <laughs> well, I, I should add a question. Um, yeah. So this is this is um, like what exactly is the nature of this? It's it's unfinished, but Christopher Tolkien sort of collected some notes and and uh, added some stuff. Like right. I don't exactly understand what like how this was put together in the, in the form that we sort of have it. And so it's all written by Tolkien, but um, it essentially just needed to be edited together, uh, which it was eventually, and then released in its own volume in 2007. Some of it was released. Uh, uh, sorry. No, yeah. 2007. Yeah, it was. Some of it was released earlier in unfinished tales, but that was a very different kind of editing job, I guess. Um, and it seems to be that at the time, Christopher Tolkien's son thought that uh, it couldn't sort of stand alone in a in a sort of a complete way. But then he seems to have changed his mind, and uh, and um, as he says, I think in the introduction, a uh, sort of a or somewhere anyway, um, you know, he sort of reconsidered the the textual. Well, I don't want to call them notes because the, the, the I don't know the the um, the drafts, I guess story and then thought that um he could actually you know get get something more coherent out of it and so that's what he did um so it, it 
yeah, there's nothing written by Christopher there, um, as far as I know. Uh, okay, okay, gotcha. Um, so it's um, it's an editing job, and I think as a you know just as a continuous narrative, I think it works fairly well, and it's pretty close, I think, to what Tolkien would have completed um, had he lived to to do so himself. Um, so I think in that sense, it's fairly um, it's fairly valuable and sort of stands with The Hobbit as a sort of a shorter novel, um, shorter in a way that you can go into that world uh, without having to read The Lord of the Rings um, or The Silmarillion, especially um, if you want to right. do that. I'm not sure if mm-hmm. you would agree with that. <laughs> but again, I guess it's that issue of, as you say, is it really accessible um, to someone who doesn't have that uh, pr- prior knowledge, perhaps? Yeah, it's a it's a peculiar issue, right? It's 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 quite standalone, um, yeah, given that yeah. you know certain things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, yeah. I, I don't know that. I don't. It, it would be nice to, because you know, I'm not like a Silmarillion expert. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which is fine, by the way. <laughs> but I'm, yeah, but but I'm I'm familiar enough with it that I could sort of hang, because um, mm. I had read it uh, a, a fair while ago. But um, yeah, it would be yeah. interesting to give a copy of the Children of Huron to someone who's pretty much only sort of versed in like the main sort of Lord of the Rings part of it. And, you know, that would be a fun experiment to, to see how, how that holds up. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, that would be interesting <laughs> for sure. And I think that's some of the appeal of the book and, you know, um, I don't know exactly how widely read it is, but my, my impression anyway, is that from reading reviews on Amazon and things is that, uh, quite a few people picked this up who would not otherwise have picked up the Silmarillion or something and sort of enjoyed it, um, even though they hadn't. And as I said, you, I think you, you've listened to the audiobook, right? So the, mm-hmm. the paper copy um, comes with quite a good introduction. So um, I think you can sort of orient yourself fairly well, um, you know, just in this volume, you know, without having to sort of read the story because the backstory ultimately doesn't matter too much, I think, for this book. I think, yeah. uh, I think the... The story stands on its own to to a degree. I think that's true of um, very few of the other Silmarillion stories, um, which are much more sort of heavily implicated in the wider narrative of that book. Um, we'll come to true. why I think that is, but yeah. I, I, so I think I think this of all the books that Tolkien almost finished, I think this is the one that's you know that it's most interesting to have actually you know, published in a sort of finished form. <laughs> um, so, or in an, you know, in an edited, in a form that's finished enough that, you know, um, that it can be sort of accessible. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. That's fair. Yeah. So having given that terrible little synopsis, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm interested to know what you sort of thought about the book um, and, yeah, I guess we can go from there. So, what did you, what did you think about it? Um, well, like I said, I thought it was it was interesting. Um, the you know the 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 two things that were sort of most sticking out to me, uh, actually, maybe three things. Like the the three things that were most sticking out to me is that um, is that this feels very um secular like it, it, it there's really <laughs> not there's really no sort of um divine intervention um no yeah and then the the other two things is that um you know at least as it got to the to the um ending it, it really it really had um had 
flavors of of um Oedipus as well as um Paramus and Thisbe slash Romeo and Juliet, you know. There, there was <laughs> yeah. there was a sort of literary flair to the to the latter half of it that I thought uh was was quite interesting. Um I don't know if you have anything to riff off of those off of any of those points. Um yeah. I know that I suppose I would agree <laughs> with that. And um yeah, I think for reasons that I'll perhaps get into, um, or I can get into now. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the, the the story seems to have been, um, I don't know, it, it was at first based on, I think, in, in its earliest manifestations, kind of based on the kind of literature of um, Finland, at least in the, the whole... Um, Spoilers, by the way. <laughs> the whole um, brother sleeping with sister aspect of it. Um, hmm. It was sort of based on a Finnish uh, myth cycle um, from the Kalevala. So um, interesting. All, uh, yeah. I don't know about I don't know about any of that. Uh, is there anything to 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 elaborate there? Yeah. Well, I mean, Tolkien basically um, basically says as much and it's fairly well documented because the first sort of written story of, of his, um, even before he did the, you know, any of the uh, early book of lost tales stuff was a, a rendition of this particular Kalevala story into um, prose. So it was kind of a short story. Um, hmm. And it's this, you know, this, this sort of blundering hero who, you know, eventually uh, seems to, you know, be cursed or to somehow, um, you know, fate, as it were, is, is is not on his side, and this this hero or character—I don't know if you'd call him a hero—Kulavo eventually um, uh, eventually sleeps with his sister, and there's the incest thing, and and then there's the suicide thing again with the talking sword at the end. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that that seems to be the backbone, and then uh, Turin as a kind of heroic character or partially heroic character seems to be heavily sort of inspired by um, perhaps Norse um, examples, especially in his kind of attitudes towards uh, towards life, his sort of, uh, I don't know what, what you call it, his, you might call it his northern philosophy, you know, um, sort of let's fight our battles now and if even if we lose, you know, well, we've still, you know, done the best that we can. <laughs> um and we're not really the worst for it because we've, you know, we've um, we've fought honourably, etc. So I think there's those those kind of influences on this story are particularly evident, more so than and more directly, perhaps, than they are in some of the other um, Silmarillion stories, and also the Lord of the Rings, which obviously there are all sorts of influences which perhaps um, go into that. But yeah, so so I think that that influence or that that bedrock gives it a particular kind of flavor right right off the bat, right from the start, uh, which is quite distinct from some of his other stories. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I need to brush up on my, my Norse um, mythology, I guess, <laughs> or, or whatever, my Norse um, literature. Um, so so what, when, you, when, you, when you are talking about Turin's um, northern attitude, um, could, could you say more about what you mean by that? And like, as opposed to... As opposed to what? Like, what is that contrasted with? Yeah, that's a good question. It's something I, I still don't know exactly myself. <laughs> but I think, you know, Tolkien is 
of course, famous for his Catholicism, his, you know, um, sort of imbuing the Lord of the Rings with that kind of moral universe, which, with that kind of moral sentiment, I guess, which I think is true to an extent, at least. Um, there's, there's obviously um, something loosely Catholic, if you like, about um, at least some aspects of the Lord of the Rings, especially in its sort of evocation of providence, perhaps. Um, that, that's perhaps the most obvious place where that manifests. But I think as you mentioned here um, before, I think at least some of the characters in this book, um, Turin and uh, some of the others, actually, some of the other human characters, the mortal characters especially, tend to exhibit this um, attitude towards life, which is quite distinct from, say, Aragorn or some of the characters in Lord of the Rings. And, you know, as I said, I think it's this theory of what Tolkien might have called theory of northern courage, which is, well, even though we know that um, the curse or fate or whatever it might be, even though that's going to get you eventually, you sort of fight anyway, you know, um, because there's something honourable or, um, or perhaps just necessary. Perhaps it's just, you know, it's... It, it, it's a sort of a. It's sort of the only choice that you have as a as a kind of mortal. It's it's to um, it's to fight fight those battles as best you can, even though that you know um, in the end you will be defeated and you'll die, and you know <laughs> it'll all be a, a disaster and a tragedy. So um, yeah, so it's it's almost like a like a deontological um, view. Is that fair? Uh, is that, am I, am I missing that? Ontological. Um, maybe. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. Like deontological, that, that, that would refer to Kant's theory, right. Of, of moral action. And yeah. Yeah. I, think so. um, I mean, I'm sure any real philosophers <laughs> are listening to this, pulling their hair out, but <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. No, I, I think it's sort of, I mean, it doesn't necessarily, the thing about this particular Northern, um, worldview if you like to take it from that which which really does come from the, the sort of north norse literary canon or perhaps more specifically this some of the sagas which again i'm not an expert in either so i'm not going to try <laughs> but, um but tom shippey recently wrote a, bit, a book about um well essentially it was a book about norse literature really even it was sort of billed as a book about the vikings but it's really a book about norse literature and um he talks about you know, the, the Northern theory of courage, if, if you like. And it's not really an ethical position in a sense, um, or it doesn't have to be. It, it's it's more a position that um, you might say is in some sense nihilistic. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to have an ethic. Um, and so the dark side of that worldview is that um, if you believe that uh, your duty is to sort of fight the battles um, that face you um, in this world, you know, without regard for sort of other people necessarily or other, other you know, future generations or ethical concerns that we might have, you know, obviously the, the dark side of that worldview is that you might end up committing, um, committing atrocities uh, even if you are not intending to do so. So, <laughs> um, which I think, you know, is a theme in, in sort of not the Norse. Yeah, yeah. I, I see more what you mean now. I mean, Turin definitely has um, has this mm. this sense when when he when sort of in in the in the fight against 
Morgoth that 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 does seem mm. more of a it seems more like a like a almost like an ethical position like it, I could sort of see some sort of deontology being applied there like this is the good thing to do regardless of what the oh consequence, I see what the consequence is going to be yeah, yeah I see what you mean by that yeah, yeah. but yeah, guess, but in a lot of his life sort of leading up to that it seems to make him you know quite a bit of a nuisance as well. <laughs> um, in a way that I don't think you could apply the same kind of ethical position um, when you're talking about a fight in sort of good and evil, um, where that attitude gets him to do something that I think is sort of morally courageous um, in the in the face of in the face of sort of overwhelmingly negative odds, yeah. like like uh, like universally negative odds. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But that's say, but because it's not really like a nuanced ethics that he's applying, it's more just a sort of. Uh, it's more just a sort of, uh, is bluster a fair word? So, uh, I think there's definitely an element of bluster too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so like earlier, like, you know, he, he, he sort of portrayed, uh, at least to, I, I kind of read it as sort of, he, he was kind of portrayed as almost a nuisance to some people. Is that fair? I think so. I mean, it depends exactly on what, which episode you're talking about of the, of the book, but I was um, thinking of the, the outlaws. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, that's a funny. <laughs> yeah, so he he obviously um, hooks up, as it were, with a group of outlaws um, for a while. Once he's, as it were, banished from you know Doriath, the sort of elf kingdom where he grows up as a child and then you know young adult, um, um, and then uh, you know he seems to sort of lose any sense of ethical principle during this period and. Um, sort of pillages and, and what whatnot, um, and and lives the life, you know, of that of that sort of uh, well of, of an outlaw, and yeah, it's it's implied that um, that uh, he does become yeah <laughs> at least at the very least a kind of a nuisance, I guess, to yeah to some of the local people, um, probably worse than that actually, but <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So yeah, definitely um he's not sort of a um I don't know, he's not a paragon of virtue like Aragorn is. I mean, one can't imagine Aragorn joining a band of outlaws. <laughs> no, he, he, even when he is sort of in in exile, he's he's a noble exile. Yeah, he's a noble exile. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. No, he, and he always, you know, he always works towards um towards particular sort of goals that you know he says Caesar's you know highly righteous I guess um and uh one can not really imagine Turin doing that sort of a thing at least not in a not in a grand sense because ultimately ultimately his his motivation is really just to protect his family it's not really doesn't really extend to sort of middle earth as a whole or anything like that I I think anyway that's my reading of him yeah, that seems fair. Yeah. Um, to to sort of go with the the contrast um, mm-hmm. with 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 Turin and, and Aragorn, um, can you can you sort of like point to one or two places in 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 this in this story where where Turin does something that you think sort of that, that, where you think Aragorn? I mean, obvious things like the the outlaws aside you know yep. I, I don't think aragorn would ever you know like <laughs> p- pillage but um like yeah. say saying the decision to to um 
to fight against um, Morgoth? Like, what, what what do you think Aragorn would do there, and and why? And like, are there any other places where where the contrast seems quite stark to you? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I guess uh, I, I think you know, it's particularly in his decision to um, do battle against Morgoth. Um, when in Nargothrond, the sort of elvish kingdom that he ends up inadvertently destroying, um, when he makes that decision, I, I, I think that you know Aragorn would have listened to advice and he would have he would have waited, he would have you know bided his time. You know, I think also Aragorn would have been completely. Um, I think he would have been completely or uh, sort of de- not dependent, but he would have listened to Melian you know, the, the sort of wise character, mm. um, more or less taking her advice. And um, so, uh, you know, I think, the yeah, I mean, Aragorn does, you know, he does grow up in Rivendell, right? So he, he also grows up in like an elvish refuge. Um, but, of course, we, we see that he, um, you know, he, his life story is, is more or less, as I said, the opposite of Turin. So he doesn't act rashly, you know, he bides his time, he... Um, Etc. Etc. Where where I think that where you know Turin is, Turin obviously uh, famously I suppose for people who who re- read the Silmarillion um, you know fails several times to several key moments to heed the advice of those around him and um, but I think again Aragorn is just um, a heroic character in a very different sense. Some would say maybe a Christian. He's a Christian hero in a, in a way, but I think that overstates the, the matter. I think he's just a. I think Aragorn is a kind of. Um, I think I, I wrote somewhere in our notes he's a kind of stoic hero, and I, I mean that because I think he really exhibits the kind of stoic virtues, um, hmm. to an extent that uh, someone like Turin <laughs> doesn't. So you know, Aragorn Aragorn exhibits you know patience. Um, wisdom, uh, sort of temperance, th- those sorts of virtues where Turin, if we're thinking about this contrast with this sort of northern theory, if you like, this Norse, Norse idea, and if, if Turin sort of embodies that to an extent, well, he is impetuous. He just, you know, he faces the world as it is. He, you know, he's not, he's not, um, he's not distracted, if you like, <laughs> by uh, sort of an abstract um uh, I don't know calculation of, of of sort of virtue per se, whereas I think one can say that about Aragorn. Uh, it's not that Aragorn completely, uh, you know, just reading Lord of the Rings recently, <laughs> rereading it, I was struck by how um, Aragorn also exhibits some characteristics of the the northern um, heroic temperament. Like he's, he's he he speaks a couple of times about vengeance. He um, he does doubt himself a little bit, um, but but at other times he really is that sort of stoic sage hero. Almost he, um, as I say, he he sort of exhibits those virtues. So I think that's an interesting way to, um, you know, or an interesting way to contrast those those two characters. Yeah, is it fair to say that um, that part of Aragorn's journey mm. um, is is to sort of uh, learn when to be stoic and when to be more northern or whatever is that <laughs> um is maybe. That, like does he does he sort of switch back and forth with any sort of more nuance as the, as the books progress 
Um, not really, because <laughs> famously, I mean, Aragorn's character is fairly uh, is drawn fairly distantly, you know. Um, and that this is, I mean, this is a criticism some people have of the book, right? Is that Aragorn just seems like such this, this sort of um, figure on a pedestal or whatever, um, yeah. statuesque almost. You know, he's. He, some people have even said, well, he doesn't have a character. I think that's wrong, but I mean, I think that again, I don't think Aragorn is, is sort of the focus of, of the book. Um, really, the hobbits are, but but I think that um, yeah, in terms of his moral character, I, I don't think there's all that much. Um, growth, as you might put it, in a novelistic sense, because we really meet Aragorn when he's already done all that, when he's already gone through all that. Um, right. In the and and uh, perhaps that makes him a boring character for some people, but you know, I think I think it's still an interesting. Um, he's still an interesting kind of uh, figure in 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 the, in the way that he sort of embodies some of those, as I said, um, sentiment, sort of moral sentiments that um, we're clearly meant to. For the most part, um, uh, sort of f- follow along with, I, I guess. Um, where a character like Turin, I think, is well, I don't know. Obviously, we're not meant to, I think, just follow along with with him. We're meant to some extent to um, to sort of pity his, uh, you know, his life <laughs> and his choices. But um, you know, but I think at the same time. Uh, he's sort of portrayed in a more ambiguous way. At least mm-hmm. that's yeah, my reading. Yeah, for sure. And and he he really sort of um, uh, this this is Turin that I'm talking about. Um, yes, yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> he he really um, I think he he sort of embodies um, the concept of of moral luck. Mm-hmm. I think in a way that uh, in a way that um, not a lot of characters um, in in the Lord of the Rings do i think it's it's a That's more a point. yeah yeah um i don't know if you if you want to speak to that at all well yeah i mean i'd love to hear sort of more what what, what causes you to think that but yeah for me it's having a depiction of his childhood is really important for that because and i, I don't know if this is exactly what you mean by it but um but I, I, there's this great sense in the children of her in that everything like sort of is to some extent very contingent, highly contingent, sort of um, not only the events that occur to you, but also your own personality. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you got that sense or if that's what you mean, but, th- but yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's what I would have said. Um, you know, because we meet, we meet, uh, we meet him early on his, in his childhood, you know, Yes, this sister who sort of just dies, um, you know, very young. There's a sense that this is meaningless. You know that, you know that 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 the characters in the book can't really make sense of it. And indeed, there's a conversation right where Turin says, um, "Actually, I'll read it out. It's somewhere here." Um, you know, that, that there's a there's a sense really that that um, I can find it that life is somehow highly precarious and I certainly don't get that sense from Lord of the Rings um, necessarily uh, mm-hmm. so on my copy it's page 43 but um, so Turin asked this sort of um, friend that he has he's like a I don't know, servant or something but so this is just after his sister has died and he says um, 
What is fate? <clears throat> As to the fate of men, said Sador, who's this character? You must, must ask those who are wiser than Labadell, which is his um, nickname. Uh, but as all can see, we weary soon and die. By mischance, many meet death even sooner. But the elves do not weary, and they do not die, save by great hurt. From wounds and grief that would slay men, they may be healed. And even when their bodies are marred, they return again, some say. It is not so with us. Then Lilith will not come back, said Turin. Where is she gone? <laughs> she will not come back, said Sador. But where she has gone, no man knows, or I do not. So I think that conversation there just sort of encapsulates the whole theme of, of this story, <laughs> which is that it's kind of shitty to be human and we sort of die way too soon. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if you got that sense of it, but uh, for me that that's really, that captures the, the whole, <laughs> the whole, the whole sort of thing really. Um, yeah. I think that's, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely quite a bit more um, sort of pessimistic in its, in its scope or maybe nihilistic is, is better. Maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe even um, that, that. I think that conversation really captures that sense of moral luck that you were talking about. Um, yeah, and what's what's interesting is that these the characters in this book, um, they really don't have any sense of the providential at all. Um, you know, it's just not there. <laughs> it's just not. I mean, maybe the elves do. I mean, to some extent, but uh, certainly if we're if we're just thinking about this book, um, yeah, I, I would have thought that that it really is a kind of uh or, or that it sort of takes place almost in a different in a different universe to the lord of the rings um <laughs> in in some ways yeah it seems to be a, a world that is that is um um i i don't know if this is if this is true but it, it seems to be a world that is sort of much more um aware of its of its decay yeah, yeah. Than, than the than the Lord of the Rings, so like the characters well, at least seem yeah. to be. I think I think the people in Lord of the Rings are aware of decay as well, and and I mean we have that through you know the through Lothlorien through sort of some of that um, sense that perhaps ironically in the Lord of the Rings it's the elves who are sort of trying to preserve you know everything against the ruins mm. of time as it were, um, but there's certainly not that sense of like immediate. Um, mortal danger as, as there is here i think it, it really evokes a sort of a, a world a sense of a world in war, you know in the throes of war and that is um on the brink of sort of cat catastrophe <laughs> and that you know death death could kind of come at any moment and i think in that sense also it's kind of similar to the saga literature of of, of the of, well of iceland in the sense that it, it evokes this world of um, sort of immediate physical danger as well as sort of existential threat <laughs> Hmm. which you get in the Lord of the Rings more sort of that sense of, you know, this threat that's so, to some extent um, off in the distance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems, it seems in, in, in the Lord of the Rings, it's, it's um, everything is sort of, everything mm. is sort of further away. Mm. Like the, mm. the, the problems are sort of not, not um, sort of as concentrated or as nearby as it seems in, in, in the children of fear. And I, but um yeah I, I was also thinking of like the 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 the, the way that it, the, the way that it sort of turns into him um sort of um like it, it's it's painted as a as a bad decision that he makes um mm -hmm. to to go into battle with with 
Morgoth. Um, oh, yeah. Is that fair? Um, I, well, particularly in some parts, like in Nargothron, for example, yeah. I think when he's, um, you know, takes the elves out and gets them all destroyed. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then the dragon goes, goes in the, the uh, you know, takes over the, the kingdom and sits on the gold. Yeah. Um, but what exactly was he supposed to do? Am I, am I missing something? No, no, that's right. Well, I mean, I guess, again, it's this, it comes back to this, this, um, this conflict between the humans who have obviously the short lives and the elves who can sort of sit around. And, um, so I think there's a, you know, there's, there's a sort of thematic contrast that's set up there. Um, and in the book anyway, it's sort of implied that Turin should have obviously stayed in Nargothron. He, you know, he shouldn't have built the bridge. He should have, um, he should have uh, avoided battle at least for some period. Um, but yeah, I think the question that Turin would say, would ask is what, what am I supposed to do? You know, which, which is what he does say, you know, are we mm. really, and, and, and I think this is where you can see perhaps that Tolkien is, well, I don't know that you can see perhaps that there is a cost to this Northern epic or Northern, um, Northern sentiment, Northern heroic sentiment, which says that, you know, you go out and face the, the demons as it were and, and just battle them and, and, you know, um, hmm. come what may, which is that, you know, he gets the kingdom destroyed. But, um, but of course the problem or the issue is that <laughs> if you know, you know, the wider Silmarillion, um, that's going to happen at some point anyway. So <laughs> it's like, um, it, that there's really a question about, well, yeah, what, what really should he have done in that situation? Unfortunately, those two, the Nagathron chapters are the least um, the least developed. So I think Tolkien would have written up uh, written those chapters up quite a lot more had he finished the book um, properly. But so unfortunately, that those those chapters kind of um, kind of give a, a too, too I don't know too too brief of a picture of what what's going on there. But um, yeah, I, I think in general that. The distinction in the book is is or one one contrast in the book is is between um, sort of the fact that the elves have these long lives means that they can sort of sit around and wait for things to improve or that they can you know wait for an opportune moment whereas humans can't do that and um, I think that's why this idea that um, uh, Turin sort of embodies the northern theory of courage, if you like, is important because the book is sort of asking, you know, is, is this a viable um, way to face life, you know, with this kind of, um, with this kind of, uh, I don't know, philosophical or um, I don't want to say ideological, but, <laughs> um, you know, point of view, the, the point of view that says, well, um, you know, we don't have much time, we've just got to we've got to fight the battles we have to fight and we you know, it's better for the, the battles are better for having been fought. Um, or do we sit around and wait? But if we do that, you know, we might just die before we've achieved anything. <laughs> so, um, which is, um, you know, I, I think ultimately the book, um, if, if you were to ask him, I think Tolkien would probably say, well, you know, this Northern idea is kind of, um, kind of tragic and, and pessimistic as you said and therefore ultimately mistaken because you know 
we have the sort of you have the Catholic faith, and we have the we have redemption in in, in whatever in in Christ and whatever, and you know that that's what that's what provides an answer to this existential problem of of human life. But of course, if if you don't believe that, then um, I think this book can sort of function or serve as a contrast to, to, to Lord of the Rings and, and that that sort of perhaps a more more orthodox vision in some respects anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely got that feeling that that this jived a lot more with, with my general attitude towards the world. <laughs> right, yeah. I don't know about you. Well, yeah, I mean, that's. I, I guess that's why I like it, because it does. I mean, I like Lord of the Rings too, and I, I don't think the Lord of the Rings can be just reduced to it's Catholic propaganda. I don't think that's um, that's what it is. But um, certainly, there is a sense of the providential there that is not that lack that is lacking here. I think, um, and which uh, the change in the, the shift in emphasis to a character who um, who exhibits these kinds of um, these sentiments, which you know, again, as I said, sort of really comes out of Norse saga literature i think that just gives such a contrast to um uh to the hobbits and some of the and aragorn and you know those those characters in the lord of the rings and i think that's why i like it and and as you said i think it, it jives better with my um with my own worldview anyway which is <laughs> a slightly pessimistic one <laughs> yeah it, it really is it really is a sharp contrast in in just how how bleak it is i mean mm. for, for for both turin and 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 Huron and like their their whole family, like they they sort of um, annihilation, but not not only the annihilation, but the sort of like uh, the degradation is mm-hmm. is total, mm-hmm. is it's total and complete, and yeah. um, and there isn't there isn't uh, not only is there like no providence to be had, it's just it's like, that doesn't even exist. It seems it's not even it's not even on the table. Well, what I find funny is that in that conversation, for example, which I, um, you know, mentioned before, which I quoted before, um, yeah, there's no, no, there's no sense of the divine at all. There's no like, well, you know, uh, we go to some place where, you know, where we meet our maker as it were. <laughs> there's no, the characters themselves don't seem to have any awareness of that. Um, yeah. Which I find fascinating. Um, yeah. And they say it too, which is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one thing to not know, but but say like this is just what we believe, and you know we act yeah. as if it's true. They, he actually says, you know, we don't know. <laughs> the <laughs> yeah, implication exactly. being probably it's nothing. <laughs> That's yeah, how it is, and, at least. Yeah, and and of course, again, you know, Tolkien, the Catholic, would would probably want to come back and say, um, well, the characters are just sort of ignorant. They, you know, that they, they haven't. Sort of had the revelation, as it were, but um, you know, I think I think it's just truer to to life that um, if that's if that's a criterion that we want to use, that um, that people uh, you know would would in a situation like this um, in, in a sort of pre-Christian world, if you like, um, or a post-Christian world, <laughs> perhaps. Um, you know, simply admit ignorance about about uh, sort of life after death or whatever, because um, that's actually you know a reasonable position to have. And in a pagan context, which this one kind of is, um, I think uh, you know I think that's a, a reasonable 
thing for the characters to say um, and not not at all sort of out of place. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's an odd one. And I think, and I think, um, you know, for some people, I, I think there's an urge to want to, um, I don't know, to draw it in or assimilate it to, um, to the sort of overall um, Christian or perhaps loosely theistic vision of the Lord of the Rings and the, you know, to some extent the, the rest of the, the, um, the rest of the narrative, but um, yeah, I think the story resists that, at least for me, anyway. Um, do Do you have any any ideas about why why it might be so different? It, it does seem sort of anomalous, um, and and I wonder I think, how how you I think came as I said it. before, because it's so heavily ba- inspired by um, essentially non Christian literatures, um, or at least literatures that. Um, speak to a non-Christian world, so other sort of Icelandic um, culture or perhaps Finnish, you know, Finnish folk culture. Um, I think that's why ultimately, but, you know, you might say, well, why didn't Tolkien more thoroughly revise it so that, I don't know, we have some sense of the the U catastrophe at the end, that is the good catastrophe. You know, why, do the, why is the, as you say, why is the tragedy so complete? Um, I don't know. And, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think Tolkien was more complex than only sort of a Christian propagandist as some people want him to be. Um, and I don't think this story is easy to assimilate into that whole picture, unless you just want to make a blanket sort of theological statement like, well, all suffering is noble in the end because it's... Um, you know, has some purpose that's inaccessible to us. Um, I think in philosophy, this is this is called um, skeptical theism, <laughs> <laughs> like this idea that well, you know, the, the, the amount and gratuity of suffering is never is never can never speak against God because God can always have reasons for um, for permitting suffering that we don't know about. So, you know, I think you can make that sort of a blanket theological statement about about it and. I guess that assimilate, assimilates the story into the wider framework, but it does so somewhat inelegantly. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. I I think what you say is right that it, that it really throws a wrench into into a sort of straight up Catholic reading. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really does sort of complicate the picture from from someone who who didn't really know um, about the story or or sort of how it how it shakes out. You know, um, it surprises me, and and I, I think it. it you know, if I if I had known about it before, I don't think I would be so um, mm. conflict, conflicted and and being conflicted about about his Catholicism. <laughs> um, yeah, but um, do you hear that? It sounds like someone's having a party outside. Yeah, yeah, good on them, I guess. <laughs> I guess, or well, maybe it's a protest. It almost sounds like people are chanting. Wow, what's yeah. what's going on? Here? I don't yeah, know. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Um, in, in any case, um, what were we talking about? <laughs> uh, um, oh yeah. How, how he came to, to write something that's yeah. so dark. Oh yeah. Is, is there, is there any sort of, um, relation between this and, and maybe sort of like the, the book of Job in which it also seems like God is, is sort of fairly, um, mm. capriciously, um, like malicious towards, towards Job. Um, um, for, for seemingly no reason at all. 
the funny I'm, thing I'm is, not an expert, it's, but it's really Morgoth, aka the devil, who's like acting like God in that story. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think it's I think well, I mean, I don't, I don't know the extent to which it was an inspiration, but I think oh, there are some obvious thematic parallels, um, and also like Manfred, the um, the Byronic uh, sort of hero um, from the poem. I don't know if you've read that, but mm-hmm. there's yeah, there, there there are sort of several. Um, yeah, literary resemblances, which uh, some of which you mentioned before, the most obvious, which are sort of perhaps the Oedipus and the Greek tragic, center, you know, cycle, um, that that whole cycle. Um, but also, as I said, some of this um, Finnish or and, and or also Norse, um, which I think particularly comes through in, in Turin's character. Um, but yeah. um, well, I was I was I mean maybe this is wrong, but. Um or maybe this is a far more common trope than, than I give it credit for, but um, mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't Pyramus fall on his own sword in, in Pyramus and Thisbe as well, where, where they are sort of... Um, it's very, been so long since yeah. I've read that. Um, that's in... Um, that's, um, that's from Ovid, from Ovid. yeah, yeah. Um, it's been so long since I've read it, but yeah, possibly, um, yeah. <laughs> it's another sort of case of... I mean, it's it's slightly more... It's, it's slightly different here because... Um, because mm. because they're because they're brother and sister, um, yes, yeah, yeah. But but it, it seems another case of sort of misaligned lovers. Mm. Um, um, yeah, it's a. Um, I think it's a, it's a story that has resonances in several classical and and also northern uh, mythical stories. Um, you know, as I said, and also. Um, also, to an extent, the romantics as well. Uh, Turin is a, I, I don't know, Turin is a, a sort of a Byronic figure, I, th- I think. <laughs> yeah, I um, would agree. It, it's in, in some ways, it seems a lot, a lot more modern than, than the rest of his stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think only, in, only because I think, I think that is, yeah, perhaps partly because, as I said, it, it has a, its attitudes towards death and. Um, sort of mortality are modern and at least for some of us, I guess, in the sense that there is a kind of overwhelming pessimism. There is an overwhelming sense of the tragic, which um, is not obviously that that is not um, exclusive to modernity, but it's often, you know, it is often remarked on by, you know, mostly by religious people apparently who, who don't like this particular development in, in our cultures. But, you know, the, the, the modern is, um, the, the modern is ankylous, you know, that we have no sort of no way to approach death that we're, we're sort of um, that all we do is consume and, and sort of try and avoid the realities of the reality of mortality, which is funny to say after COVID and like, I mean, it, I mean, there is truth in that. I think in that half a million deaths in the U S and, you know, I, someone was saying the other day, you know, that no one's ever published pictures of people dying in, in, in the hospitals from COVID, you know, um, it, there's there's an extent to which our culture sort of ignores death as well um so yeah that's the the great irony of of the improvement of our health in general right is a you know one can one can go um one can have a fairly good run without having any sort of real confrontation with death in their lives um yeah yeah. and and when it yeah yeah (laughs) until it's the big one (laughs) <laughs> yeah yep um so 
you know, I think I think a book like this, on, on some level, yeah, at least feels more modern for that reason. That it sort of, um, as, as we've talked about, its characters are not um, unlike Aragorn, who at the end of his life sort of willingly gives up his life and says, you know, to Ar- you know, he says to Arwen, you know, um, beyond the circles of the world, there's more than memory. You know, sort of expresses this vaguely religious idea. No one, in, I mean, I can't imagine any of the humans in this book saying anything like that and being taken seriously. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what are you talking about? You know, th- this is all we've got. This is what we have to face. Um, it's, yeah. You know, it's, it's before us here, you know. Um, and I think, at least to some extent, that that's a modern sort of idea, I guess, or a modern sensibility. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly feels like it. Mm. Um, so. did, did you want to speak a bit to... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at, at our notes here, or uh, yeah. at, at your notes, really. Um, and <laughs> and um, you have a bit here about um, the the ambiguity of the of the the story towards his characters. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, sure. And, yeah. I and, just... and 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 you say something about um, contrasting mm. with Gandalf, and I'm, mm. I don't exactly know what you mean, so I'm curious what you what you mean by yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I guess this again relates to sort of stances towards ethics. So we've talked about Aragorn who has this, I've called it, I've called Aragorn a stoic hero. I think that's a better, a better way to um, think about Aragorn than really a Catholic. I mean, he's not, or or something like that, you know, um, or specifically Christian. I I think he's, he's more of a stoic in the sense that he is kind of, he's bound by a a set of virtues. So um, he's kind of virtue ethic, ethical, if you like. Um, And that's really the way that he, um, he operates where, as I've said, Turin kind of embodies this kind of northern theory of courage, as, as it might be called. Mm. Um, but just, I think just real quick, I, I think I, yeah, I would agree yeah. with you that that I think Aragorn is probably better cast as a Stoic because even with sort of Catholic morality, there's some level at which it, it feels to me um, mm. almost like self-aggrandizing. Like e- even if even if one is trying to do the right thing, it's because um, one is actually trying to do the right thing oneself. Whereas the way that Aragorn sort of treats his decisions and his ethics, it seems um, he almost removes himself from the situation and, and tries to really see yeah. what, is, what is the best thing to do regardless of, you know, what exactly mm-hmm. it is that, that is, that is um, what he has to do. I don't know if that, is that true? Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's right. Um, so, but I, th- I think also the book itself or the, the text itself, if you want to talk like that, um, has an ambiguous stance towards the characters. So a lot of people take Turin to be sort of a bumbling idiot. Um, I don't think that's true. I think he has, if you read the book carefully, he's characterized as someone who has a kind of, um, who is in, in some ways kind of um, quite sentimental and, <laughs> you know, um, and, and perhaps feels pain very acutely, more acutely perhaps than other characters do. Um and so, as I, as I mentioned before, his motivation is always um, his family, to some extent, right? He wants to save them from um, from Morgoth and from sort of a bad fate more generally. Um, so, which is what perhaps spurs him to um, to make many of the silly decisions that he does. Sometimes the book um, or a character will will um, uh, will accuse Turin of, of pridefulness. Um, and certainly that is an element of his character, I think, 
But I think perhaps there's also a sense there that um, his pridefulness is simply a sort of an outcome of his mortality, his character, you know, as, as a mortal, someone who, uh, you know, pridefulness is a kind of response, another kind of response to um, being mortal, <laughs> right? Hmm. Because, That's because you have to sort of achieve things in, in life. So I think that, that there is a, there, there is a kind of, um, I don't know, ambiguous stance towards the character. The book doesn't just sort of condemn Turin, I think. Um, and that really shows itself at the end, I think, when there's suicide, right? And, you know, oh, Tolkien was a Catholic. He kind of approved of suicide. And I'm not saying he would have approved of it, but there's really no, at least my reading is that there's no judgment in the text, especially no, there's no moral judgment in the text. Right. If there's, if there's judgment of Turin, it's really just his character, like judgment of his certain elements of his character, but not for moral reasons, just, just, um, you know, for, 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 for sort of prudential reasons almost. Hmm. So when I'm talking about Gandalf, um, in, in, so when Boromir, of course, commits suicide in Lord of the Rings and um, Gandalf sort of has this ser- sermon-like speech, which is that, you know, you don't, have, you don't have the right to take your own life, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's very sort of, again, you know, I can't imagine Gandalf in this world. It would seem somehow out of place. He would seem ridiculous. I don't think the characters would really listen to him. Um, <laughs> You know, they just say, go stuff yourself. You know? <laughs> um, you know, it's quite it's quite distinct, I think. And and and, and in Lord of the Rings, the, the sense is very much that, you know, Bar- uh, did I say Boromir? Um, yeah. I meant Denethor. Yeah. Denethor, Boromir's father, commits suicide. Yeah. Denethor, Boromir doesn't commit suicide. Um, I figured that's what you meant. <laughs> yeah, not quite in that sense. Yeah, he, um, in, in the sort of grand. In the grand sort of sense. <laughs> yeah. And he does by protecting them but anyway the point is that there's this clear sort of judgment judgment placed on denethor for committing suicide you know it's like well you know and it's given by gandalf who is kind of the most if you want a christian character sort of who espouses christian moral ideas or just at all in the book it's it's really it's really gandalf because gandalf's really the one who says that you know, who seems to have some belief in providence, you know, that you were meant to find the ring, you know, and that's an encouraging thought. And then Frodo says in the book, at least he says, Oh, it's not, you know, it's not encouraging, but anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't know if Frodo really gives it a second, um, a second, a second thought, but, but Gandalf's that sort of character who espouses or who sermonizes really about sort of moral issues to an extent. And, um, but more even than Aragorn, Ar- Aragorn doesn't really do that either. As I said, he sort of just lives his, lives out his values, but he doesn't really sermonize about them all that much. Um, but Gandalf does a bit. Um, yeah. Especially as Gandalf the White, you know, the sort of even more, you know, sort of ennobled figure that he becomes. Um, but but in the book, in in this book, Children of Her and the Other, there's no sense that the text is asking us to um, make, to condemn like that. Or at least that, that's my reading. Did you think any different? No, I think that's fair. I mean... I, I I got the same feeling, and it, it sort of made it feel more, mm. um, more like a a true tragedy. You know, at the end, there was no, yeah, um, yeah. In in various parts, it, it seemed like there was there was more or less um, sort of mm. like meta commentary of, of the yes. of the yeah, sort yeah. of philosophy around it. But by the <laughs> yeah. by the end, it seems it seems just um, like a straight up like tragic novel you know or anything like mm, that it, mm. it just seems um i mean obviously there's a sort of there's a there's a uh, um 
a long scope because because the, the tragedy is sort of born of a of a curse. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't seem like there's a there's um uh, there's that much of the of, of moralizing from the text. It's it's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. It, it gets more straightforward as it as it goes on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. There, there are certainly some parts where it feels like there's some meta commentary, like like Turin's pridefulness, or you know, yeah. there's a sense. That, well, you know, um, but I, but I think the character is drawn sort of more subtly than that for the most part. Um, and you know, and again, maybe this is because this text is. I think it's you know, I think it's an interesting text because it shows that Tolkien is. Um, both a pessimist, but also an optimist. In, in an, if we're thinking about it, the philosophical sense, right? I mean, he's he's, he's a pessimist in, in some ways, um, but he wants to be an optimist, I think. <laughs> but sometimes, perhaps, he can't make himself feel that way. And, and look, that that's too much. You know, that's too much sort of um, biographizing. <laughs> but but um, but that that's the impression I get. Where you know, in the Lord of the Rings, I get that too. Perhaps in a different sense. I mean. Ultimately, the Lord of the Rings is also about sort of um, entropy and decay as well. But obviously, as, as we've mentioned, like not in that perhaps very uh, visceral sense. Hmm. But there's definitely something going on there between those two sides of his character, perhaps. Or you know, and I know that some Tolkien scholars have have remarked that he seems to have these two sides to his character. Sometimes he'll sound really optimistic and letters or something and other times he'll sound really like a pessimist and um i think that just comes through so clearly here um and presumably is something that you know drew him to some of those um non-christian or perhaps quasi-christian sort of norse or other stories in the first place yeah yeah in the you sent me like a little forum and um in in there it seemed like there, there were a few people who were saying that um, that Tolkien couldn't have written the Children of Fuerin if, if he weren't a um, a survivor of the of the sum. Is that what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean that. I think that um, you know, again, that that sort of plays into the idea that that there are perhaps those sides to his character. Ultimately, um, mm. no doubt, no doubt, fighting in a war probably um, you know expands your pessimistic imagination <laughs> to some extent. Um, yeah, certainly but, yeah, I, I think, no stranger to to mm, um, the sort of like t- total total nihilist um, yeah. or like the the, t- the total nihilism that life can be, I guess. Or the, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't think Tolkien is a philosophical nihilist, um, and I, th- I think ultimately, um, although yeah, I think this book comes closer than some people want to admit. I think, um, and indeed, just the Silmarillion in general, I think that the wider. I think comes a little closer than some people would want to admit. I think there are definite, definite pessimistic strains. Um, and I'm saying not just, not just like the pessimistic affect, like I'm a bit pessimistic today. I mean, in the sense of <laughs> the philosophy, which is that, um, you know, that, that, that ultimately um, what we do in life is in some sense, if not meaningless, but limited, um, limited in its, uh, you know, in in its valence, in its meaningful valence. And, um, you know, I think that's certainly what a character like Turin, but also like more or less all the other human characters in this story would profess to believe, really, um, and more or less do. Um, as, as we've said, there's there's no invocation of the divine. There's no 
you know, there's no sense of providence here. Um, certainly the, the, there are sort of um, larger-than-life characters, obviously the elves, but um, they function really here as, as sort of a contrast to the humans, the mortals, you know. Mm, that's um, a really good point. So, yeah, definitely I think we can point to, to several biographical details which might be pertinent, including <laughs> including warfare, obviously. Yeah. Um, but... Um, so just really quickly, I'm, I'm sorry if you want to, mm. to, to move on to something else, but if you, if, if you say that, that this gets closer to nihilism than, um, yeah. than people you know, want to admit, um, mm. the, the implication there being, being that you don't actually think that this is ultimately nihilistic, um, what, what would you say, what would you well, say guess, is the sort of general mm. thing of this? <laughs> the general, the philosophical position. Um, yeah. I don't think ultimately... You can call it nihilist because I think there is enough, or there, there is a sense in the text that um, obviously there are still these characters who um, I don't know who profess some kind of um, I don't know how to put it. Like they're obviously connected with the divine in some ways, right? Like like the elves or, or whatever. Um, but. Having said that, I think, yeah, I don't know. If we're taking nihilism as the sort of philosophy that there's no uh, meaning or, or sort of moral sentiment which, you know, which is true or, um, I don't know, does that, does that capture nihilism? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, just kind of nothing, nothing matters. Yeah. yeah, nothing matters sort of thing. Um, then I, I don't know if it's quite like that because obviously Turin is not ultimately a nihilist. He's... He's motivated by his desire. He's he's really motivated by his um, by the suffering of his family and, and his desire to um, to save them from that fate, and ultimately his sister as well. You know, ironically, um, True. but <laughs> family so in every not, sense of the term, man. Yeah, <laughs> yes, in every sense. So he's not a nihilist in the sense that he believes in nothing, or but but I, I just don't think he's a virtue ethicist <laughs> like Aragorn. I don't think he's motivated by a, a sense of the, the greater good or um or anything like that I, I, you know i don't think that's um that's what really that that's that's not really the sort of heroes he is and i think you know that, that's that's perhaps some extent to which that would you know he would scoff at that idea and say well, you know hmm. um yeah so yeah. so I, I don't think it's nihilist for that reason but it, but it is pessimistic i think that in a philosophical sense it, it's it's not that nothing matters it's just that everything we matters about we, everything that we uh that we think matters is destroyed and and that's kind of shitty and there's no really there's no real consolation for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a good point i, I guess I, in in the in my sort of elementary mm. reading um i guess i was sort of putting the 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 sort of moral or like the philosophical center of the book sort of outside of Turin mm. in that, like, of course, T yeah. Turin himself is not a nihilist, but um, for all his efforts, um, you know, he is, like I said before, he's sort of crushed in a, in a sort of yeah. really, really like total way. Uh, yeah. Um, it's almost like absurd. And, and yeah. I, I kind of read that as sort of like, maybe not nothing matters, but nothing that you could possibly control in your tiny life as a human matters. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I think that is an eminently plausible reading of the book because, like, it depends how it depends how specific you want to make it. Like, 
if you want to take it as a kind of allegorical story of human life in general, then yeah, maybe. Um, I think, as I said, I think there's a lot of people resistant to that reading because, again, they want Tolkien. Oh, they want Tolkien to be a consolation, really. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, why, that's why a lot of people read the Lord of the Rings, right? And hmm. and that's in part because why I like it as well. There's something consolate, consolatory in it to to an extent, um, even if you're not a, a believer or something. There's there's a sense that it, um, I know, in its in its in its sort of sad and, and somewhat beautiful um, elegiac quality. It's, there's something lovely in it. But you know, for this book, it's not really elegiac. It's just, as you say, um, sort of the characters are crushed at the end, and um, that's that. <laughs> like there's no within the, space, within, the space, within the space of this book. There's no consolation. And, you know, you can read the consolation into it if you want to read his other books and say, well, ultimately, it's just the darkness before the dawn. It's just, you know, it's just the suffering that, you know, that we all have to face. And But in the end, you know, we have the eucatastrophe and the eagles come to save everyone. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, have- this, this might be reading too much into it, into it now, like as a sort of... Um, as a sort of philosophical proxy for the real world, but um, <laughs> to to people who would say that, I, I I almost wonder if they're running up against the same kind of um, immorality that I see that's sort of inherent in in all of the Abrahamic religions, um, mm. which is which is that um, they are they, they're so convinced of the sort of ultimate you catastrophe um, that sort of awaits the universe in their belief system that, um, and they can witness sort of, uh, you know, real horribleness in, in what we know to be, you know, real life, like real horribleness that's happening in front of your face and say, it's going to be okay in the end. You know, it's like, no, that's not what matters. You know, they're children with bone cancer. Mm, mm. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I don't know what you would, you would have to say to that. (laughs) No, I, I, I share that sentiment. I mean, I think that's why I love this book so much because it's sort of, um, yeah, my reading is definitely, if not quite nihilistic, then at least it sort of it somehow contains within it a sort of a sense of that side of life, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> of the, I think you put it. I think you just put it really well before when you said, um, uh, "What did you say about about the about luck, moral luck, or whatever?" Um, yeah. I think it, it sort of captures this sense that it's somehow luck all the way down, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, you know, Turin's character is is not a matter of um, is a matter of luck, but so is the curse in a sense, right? Because mm-hmm. really, really, what we're given is the perspective of Turin, and then to some extent, Neonor as well, um, which is in their position fr- from their point of view, having this curse sort of foisted on them is is just kind of bad luck, right? In some sense, um, right? Because they didn't do anything to deserve it, right? It's not a moral condemnation or anything like that. In that sense, it's similar to Job, right? It's like trying to make sense of that sense of. And in Job, the answer is, well, God's just big and powerful. He's a big, he's a big, uh, he's a big sky warrior, and <laughs> you just have to do what he says. <laughs> in this, in this, is a little more uh, nuanced. I would, I think. Um, I think, I think Morgoth here is kind of um, most emblematic of. Um, uh, and sometimes, I mean, sometimes characters just talk about fate, right? They don't even talk about the curse. They just, there's a sense that the curse is a sort of, um, I don't know, a sort of a uh, sort of allegorical way to talk about fate in a more general sense. 
um, perhaps. I don't know. But hmm. obviously there's a story function that it serves, but um, in a sense we're all cursed, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're all cursed by Morgoth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, perhaps not to that extent, but, <laughs> but um, yeah, so, you know, it's, it depends how how uh, yeah how, how expansively you want to read the themes of the book into life in general. And yeah, you know, I know for a lot of people who've read this book, they don't want to do that. They want to the Lord of the Rings is the thing, and this is just kind of like a weird kind of outlier thing that Tolkien wrote. But we won't sort of talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah, and and as I said, I, I don't think the Lord of the Rings itself is like consolatory in any sort of um, I don't know, in a way that that is ultimately demeaning to one's intelligence, right? I mean, I think it's it, it's 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 ultimately perhaps consoling in in a pessimistic way as well, but obviously not quite so brazenly pessimistic or tragic as this has a tendency to be. I think. Right. Um, so I know that that's how I take it anyway. Yeah. 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 But there's also something interesting where, where, um, you know, I think I think it was Nabokov who said that that um, mm. that great art is always um, is always exalting. Like there's, you always, regardless of how um, how bad the subject of the art is, if it's if it's mm-hmm. done well, like, it, it'll always um, it'll always sort of lift you. Um, and and th- there's some sense in in which um, you know. The author of this tale is is really Morgoth, you know, and um, in in that sense, it seems to be a sort of a nice, interesting sort of twist on on um, mm. on the kind of Lucifer and Satan that you see in in Milton, where where he is a, a sort of literary figure almost. Um, I, I think I was sort of talking about Milton a little bit last time, but um, as as a sort of you know. To put it mildly, like an, an author of mischief, um, sort of yeah. drawing from from sort of Chaucer's partner to um, Iago to um, Edmund from from King Lear, um, mm. who sort of has the kind of psychopathy that that Morgoth has here, um, mm. the sort of total psychopathy. Um, yeah, and, and then going into sort of um, Milton's Lucifer as as a sort of um, uh, an an evil figure but but one who has his own tragedy sort of behind him mm. and um you know yeah. what what he thinks is a sort of reasonable bone to pick with uh with his god <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh and and then goes on to sort of be be a sort of um a a really sort of fecund um you know, uh, a, a sort of writer of literary tales, as it were. I mean, if you, you know, it's a kind of psychopathic reading, but there's something interesting, interesting <laughs> there where it's like, oh man, like he really orchestrated all of this. This is insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it like that, but yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, Morgoth is, I've never thought about him as a particularly interesting character, but, but I guess there are, um, there are facets. He sort of exists in a continuum of those sorts of characters that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Um, yeah, obviously after Milton, like all these figures have some sort of, have some sort of resonance with this Satan in paradise lost. Um, I think Morgoth is far less of a romantic hero. <laughs> sure. 
not that Satan is meant to be, but he's sort of, you know he's obviously inspired the Romantics to an extent. Yeah. Um, but but um, yeah, he has he certainly has his own tragedy behind him as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's not much consolation, but no, no, no. Um, but maybe that adds to to the sort of nihilism of it all. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it's. It's not like it's not like he is his um his backstory is totally um mm. is totally sort of free from any sort of uh, dissonance and uh, and yeah. he he's just a sort of uh, a psychopath for no reason. No, yeah, yeah, he definitely. I mean, obviously, that's presented more theologically in the, somewhere in in the sort of creation myth, but um, and you know. It's very partisan, of course. <laughs> <laughs> he, just, he just wanted to riff, you know, riff on his own, like, <laughs> stuff. But, um, <laughs> sure. it, that's it, if, you're, if you're familiar with that, which is, you know, yeah. music creation story. But, um, yeah, certainly, um, I mean, if anyone's a nihilist in this story, it's probably Morgoth, obviously, but, yeah, which, no, which implies that, well, yeah, that, that implies obviously that we shouldn't perhaps take the nihilistic position. And, and as I said, I think a nihilistic reading is a little, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I would want to go there, but definitely I, I think you could read the book that way. Yeah. Um, legitimately, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you were so inclined. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard to not be nihilistic when you have Christopher Lee reading to you, to be fair. Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I think he brings out that side of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, so to get back to that point, I mean, I think, yeah, I think the book has an ambiguity towards its characters. You know, sometimes it seems a little more judgy of Turin, but then sometimes it's not. And it, it sort of, um, it just sort of follows him in a more neutral way. Um, but there's definitely never that sort of moralistic tone that so a Gandalf figure will impart to us, for example. Sure. Um, you know, and, and so, were such a character to, you know, to, to pop up in this world, I, I mean, I almost feel like that would feel out of place or, um, um, you know, a bit silly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I like what you said. I, I forget if you said this earlier, if it were if it was in your notes, right. but yeah. but um, yeah, that that it just it seems to take place in a different moral universe, and I think that's 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 think that's, it, a, that's the best does. way of putting it. I mean. I think a problem with Tolkien's not a problem, but a, a, an issue with reception of Tolkien's works is that because it's all meant to be set, of course, in this one, this world, right? I mean, the the the, the assumption, perhaps it's not a bad assumption, is that the sort of moral universe constructed quite delicately in the Lord of the Rings applies, therefore, also to all the other texts. But I, I think what's interesting, and this brings us back to the metafictional stuff, which I've been talking about with people in the last couple of interviews, is that. Um, if we take these texts to some extent to be um, sort of the outcomes of, you know, the literary cultures of these societies themselves, we shouldn't expect that um, that all that the the, you know, the the moral sentiments these stories present us with are all going to be exactly the same. And even you know, even just thinking in a in a, in a real world sense, right? I mean, um, you know, authors do write different kinds of books, you know, the same author can write a, books with different, different kinds of sentiments and they can, they can um, emphasize certain things, you know, perhaps from their personality or whatever, you know, from certain sources that they've read. 
Um, and, um, you know, I don't know if one could say of, say of Shakespeare not to, not to, you know, say Tolkien is Shakespeare, but you know what I mean. I don't know if one could say of Shakespeare that um, he has one singular philosophical sentiment that is expressed equally in all of his plays. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. And the same here, just because they're all, these books are set, as it were, in the same world, I don't think that implies that they're all of the same mind, as it were, with regards to their sort of, um, you know, the, the way that, that you can read them and, and the sort of moral sentiments and that you can, oh, pardon me, that you can take away from them. Um, <laughs> um, sorry. I'm not getting bored. <laughs> You're boring yourself, man. No. Yeah, yeah. I'm just so no. bored. <laughs> no, I'm, no, I'm just tired. But um, no, uh, I, I think you're right, and I think that's that's a real problem. Mm. That's a real problem with a lot of um, token criticism. No, I, it seems I, that people I, I feel, are. Yeah. I feel like it's like I call it like franchising, or like the whole <laughs> world becomes this this franchise that's just it's all the same. It's just like different stories, like. No, it's the, you got to look at the texts themselves. Like the texts don't approach the characters in the same way or, you know, uh, the Hobbit is a bit, uh, Hobbit is a little bit more pagan than the Lord of the Rings is. And I think in some respects and that the Silmarillion and more so and the children of Huron is the most pagan of all, <laughs> just to, just to go off, off that. But I mean, all those elements are in the books, but they're emphasized or thought about or considered in different ways. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and I think in in some ways the the sort of the unity of token is is almost a red herring. It's it seems to be um, it, it's it's obviously important, but um, yeah, like you said, it, it's it's I like that word like franchising, <laughs> where, where um, the, the sort of like un, the unity of of the of the world between all of his his works is sort of overemphasized, and um, and you wouldn't do that with anyone else's works, you know. Um, mm, no. If they happen to be set, in, you know, in the in the real world, um, yeah, exactly. I which, mean, obviously, also, yeah. actually, sorry, just a real, real quick side yeah, question: yeah. Um, is is there something about the Children of Hurin where where Tolkien originally meant this to be actually set outside of Middle Earth or something, or sorry, outside of outside of um, like the whole sort of? Um, it was always in the story cycle, but as it said, as I said, like it's Genesis really was in the Finnish. Finnish myth, and then I think you know the characteristics of the North, sort of Norse, not North, the Norse ethic, come to you know really influence Turin himself as a character. So it's always you know as a as a matter of you know does it really fit in with the rest of the the rest of the Middle Earth cycle? I think you know if you were a sort of purist about it and you wanted Tolkien, you know, again as this sort of writer of Catholic consolation fairy tales, then no, it doesn't. But um, uh, that's fine, I think. It, it just it shows that someone is working with a range of emotions and ideas that are not reducible to one theological vision. Um, and I think you can say that about religious writers just as much as secular writers. Um, sure, sure. So, um, you know, the people who sort of want to, again, want to sort of assimilate this into you know, into the sort of the consolatory vision. Um, I don't know. I, I think that that diminishes this particular um, story, I think, because it reduces it to a kind of theological footnote in which, you know, 
I mean, yeah, we can get into my thoughts on like theodicies and trying to, you know, religious attempts to explain suffering, but, um, That'll be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think this is an interesting kind of literary, uh, not an attempt to explain suffering, but an attempt to actually show its valence in life, you know, hmm. as opposed to trying to make sense of it particularly. Because um, as we've said, like none of the characters really do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So, any um, so, yeah. any any final final points? Yeah, I don't know. I think I think I've I've sort of um, I've exercised myself there. Um, <laughs> my, my opinions. Um, yeah. Again, look, this is a book. You know, I want to come back to again at some point because it is interesting. And, and perhaps once you've you know, if you happen to read it again, perhaps in in paperback um, or sure. hardback, or whatever, because. Um, you know, because as you've said, you know, as you said before, it's, it's given that it is so connected. I mean, comparatively to the Silmarillion cycle, it's 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 uh, it's definitely one that demands, or that you know, is best enjoyed. I think over a couple of reads, um, yeah, and and whatnot. But um, yeah, I think it's 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 a you know, along with the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, it's now Tolkien's third sort of you know, essentially novel. I mean, it reads less like a novel and more like a, an Icelandic saga. Again, that's not an accident, <laughs> but um, it, it is for, for all intents and purposes, a, a, um, you know, a prose work, uh, an extended prose work, a novel, if you, if you will. Um, and it's now the third novel, essentially that Tolkien, that is, that is, you know, approachable, that is fairly and reasonably approachable. So, um, I think that's great that it's there, uh, and yeah, I don't know. It, it's really interesting, and it, to use that theory word, it, it problematizes <laughs> some readers of Tolkien. I think that, that, as you say, tend to oversize the unity of his world, or or the sort of the um, or the Catholicism of his um, theological sentiment. Um, so, you know, yeah. that, that's a topic we can come back to, but. Um, I think this has been a good sort of discussion of our general thoughts about it. And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to talk about <laughs> with For someone sure. who For sure. who's also read it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely be getting the, the paperback. So, so I can, um, yeah. you know, actually sort of try to commit some, some, uh, some of it to, to memory and, uh, you know, and quote some, you know, I, I'm, I was jealous yeah, when yeah. you, when you, uh, well, um, I'm sorry. Pulled out a, <laughs> when you pulled out a quote over there, I, I'm not in a position to do that. But I, I, I suppose I could. I, I suppose I could find a, a place where we could have some Christopher Lee on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, it gives us an excuse to come back to it. Yeah, um, there you go. And for you to to quote some stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. To be continued. To be continued. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, we'll leave it there, and all the best. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Talk soon. Talk soon.